Luke 7, um, we'll start to read at verse 36, so that's on page 1036, if you're using the, the Bibles there in the pew. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose that the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We're going to read very quickly another Luke's gospel story. Luke, as we know, uh, often told us about Jesus' interaction with women. So chapter 21, a short passage. Chapter 21, the first four verses where we read about the widow's offering. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Well, it is a joy to be here. We are so grateful that we're able to be here. We've just been here a week and have been so impressed with how many of God's people are here and thriving and growing and pursuing him and loving people so well. It was really good to meet Christoph and Claire. Claire, that was you behind me. I was thinking, the woman behind me has a beautiful voice. I was thinking, it must be hard for her to stay humble. 
with a voice like that. I didn't realize it was you. Yeah, that's great. Um, but it, it was so good to meet Christoph because I, I was asked to preach on humility at the church where he's a pastor. So I was hoping he was a humble man and the whole sermon wouldn't have to be a rebuke of your pastor. But uh, it doesn't have to be. It was wonderful to spend time with him and get to know him a little bit and just feel a kindred spirit with you, Christoph. And I just already love this church family just because I've met the leaders here and had a great conversation last night with Claire and Christoph. And I'm so grateful that we get to be here. It's amazing. The Bible teaches that the bond we have as God's people far surpasses any national affiliations, political affiliations. Even our biological family is trumped by our connection to the family of God. And so we come here feeling like we're with family. Let me show you a photograph of our family. Noah, could you show me that photograph, that first one? I... Uh, Yes, there it is. That's not what you were expecting, probably. That is just a little glimpse of our church family that I wanted to show you a picture of because my family I live with every day is just a little subset of my church family. These are our volunteers at our food bank that feed people on Friday afternoons and just a few of them, actually two of them, two of my daughters are in that photograph. But I wanted to show you that picture because I come here not just representing the C.S. Lewis Institute, but primarily representing my local church family. I come here under their authority, with their blessing, with their prayers. They are praying for us. I know that in a few hours our Elders will be gathering and praying together before their Sunday morning service, and they'll be praying for our time here as they did last week when we left. And, and I come to you with greetings from Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada. I also want to show you a photograph of the family I live with on a daily basis. Noah, would you show us the next one? This is my wife, Donna, who's actually here with me. Donna, would you stand up? That's Donna. That's my wife. Tomorrow is our 30th anniversary and we wanted to spend it on this trip. Yay! Um, Donna is a brilliant, gracious, kind, patient, humble, good woman. I'm so grateful for her. And it's been a delight to be here on this week of our 30th anniversary. Royce and Susan have been tremendous hosts, and we're just glad to be here. What a beautiful place. It, it, it's got a magical quality Northern Ireland does, that I hope you're not used to. Uh, my daughter Caroline is on the right. She's 18. She just went off to college. We called her, and I, she was gone a couple of weeks. We hadn't heard from her, so I, we called her, and I said, I said to her, Caroline, we sure do miss you. There was a long pause, and she said, well, I sure am enjoying college life. I mean, she didn't even feel compelled to just return the, yeah, I miss you too, Dad. Even it, no, it, I'm happy about that. It's, it's, she's an amazing young lady, a natural-born leader. We adopted Paige a couple years after Caroline when she was seven, when Paige, uh, we adopted Caroline when she was eight from Taiwan. Same orphanage is, is Paige on the left. She is a high-energy, delightful, servant-hearted young lady. Then we adopted Sam a year and a half after that from the same orphanage as our girls. Well, actually, with a stop with another family in L.A. for a little while and before we got Sam. And he's an amazing young man with a tender heart. If he sees a dog limping, he'll start crying. 
That's how tender this boy is. And then Isaac is the life of the party wherever he is. He's never met a stranger. He's our 12-year-old there in between us. That's my family I get to live with every day. I know this is just going to be a quick introduction, but I just wanted to get a little glimpse of where I'm coming from, that I'm not just a talking head, but I'm a dad and a husband and a minister trying to work out the things of walking worthy of the gospel every day of my life in this context. Thank you, Noah. That's great. Well, I'm going to ask to speak on humility this week at the C.S. Lewis Institute and here this morning. And can you think of anything that is a better recipe to instill pride in someone than to ask them to speak on humility? It's a dangerous thing. I think someone is out to get my soul to ask me to act like I'm an expert on humility. And so humility is an incredibly difficult topic to speak on because it is one of those things that once you fancy yourself good at it, you kill it. I've done a lot of work on a Christian theology of humor. And it's sort of the same way with humor As soon as you have to explain a joke, you kill the thing. It's like dissecting a frog. You learn about it, but it's dead, right? And humor can be the same way. You you kill the thing in the midst of talking about it as if you know what you're talking about. But the Bible commands that we pursue humility in our lives. So we've really got no option but to do what we're doing today. And I want us to think about this idea of humility because... It is central to the Christian life. And pride is antithetical to the Christian life. What could be less like Jesus than arrogance? We've got to realize that to be like Jesus means to be humble people, but it's an incredibly difficult thing. I appreciate that Royce said that knowing C.S. Lewis and and loving C.S. Lewis is something that I think you all should do. He was a Belfast boy, you know. And I think he was the most effective apologist of the last century. I think for an entire generation, no one explained the gospel in a way that was more helpful to a diverse kind of people and diverse cultures. He was brilliant in his ability to take massively lofty ideas and translate them into everyday vernacular that everybody could understand. And so Lewis is a master of these things. Listen to what he writes in the Screwtape Letters. There's a copy of it I just saw right here. If you don't know the, the premise of the Screwtape Letters, it's, this, it's good advice from the other direction. It's a senior demon writing to a junior demon about how to corrupt a young man. Brilliant advice in the opposite. And so God throughout the book is the enemy. And, and they're giving advice on how to get this young man away from the enemy who is God in this. And listen to this brilliant advice from a senior demon to a junior demon. My dear Wormwood, I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? See, that's it, right? Make him aware of how humble he's becoming and we'll kill it off. All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, 
pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of the attempt. And so on. (laughs) Through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion. In which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. There should be a sense in us when we become aware of the human folly in our hearts that leads us from uh, an attainment of humility and so quickly it becomes pride. And that's so true of us. We are a bunch of clowns, a bunch of fools running around in this fallen world. And as soon as we get in on the joke, the better off we'll be. As soon as we take God so seriously, that we don't take ourselves seriously at all, we'll be heading in the right direction. And so that's what we're trying to do this morning. Think about this this folly of pride in a creature, a mere creature who owes everything it has to the Creator somehow being proud in His presence. And I know in my heart, I have this crazy tendency to swing from insecurity to pride. And back to insecurity. And I actually think the most insecure people are the most self-absorbed people. It's a strange paradox, but insecurity and pride so often go hand in hand. And so this is an insidious sin, arrogance, and humility is an incredibly difficult to attain quality that God has for us. So where do we go? What do we do to understand this? Because as C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. It's, it's a subconscious self-forgetfulness. My friend Jerry Root, who is truly a C.S. Lewis expert, unlike the man standing before you, Jerry says, Eric, there seems to be two kinds of people in the world. Here I am, people. And there you are, people. It seems that some people have just gotten to the point in their Christian maturity where they can walk in a room and they're overwhelming perception of that experience is not how am I being perceived am I being appreciated am I being valued are they seeing my best side but it's there you are I wonder how you are I wonder how I may serve you I wonder how I could pray for you there's a there you are inclination in the heart of our hearts that spills out in our relationships. And this is not an easy thing to attain for us, but we must seek it as followers of Christ. We must seek to understand this. Because 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, he will exalt you. Did you hear that? The way to be exalted in the Christian life is to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. The way to be lifted up by God is to lower ourselves in his presence. There's an expression in the south of the United States. People will say when someone's showing arrogance, boy, you need to get low. 
You need to get low, and that's what we need to do today. We need to think about what it means to get low, to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And there's the key right there. This is not self-loathing. This is not thinking less of ourselves. This is not saying, oh, I'm a loser, being a big Eeyore all the time about ourselves. You know Eeyore? Yeah, okay, good. He is a, a, he's from this part of the world, you know. He was invented over here. And, and yeah, it's, it's not looking down on ourselves. It's looking up to God and seeing ourselves in light of who he is. I think sometimes if we could just get the first verse of the Bible down, everything else would fall into place. If we could just get Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's all his. It's all from his hand. Anything we have, anything you have is a gift from God. Every heartbeat, every breath, every molecule, every atom is a gift from God. He gave that to you. What do you have to be proud of? What do you have to exalt yourself because of? Nothing. What Paul asks the Corinthians, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? It's a rhetorical question. The answer should be obvious. Nothing. I've got nothing that hasn't been given to me. It's all gift. And this creator-creature distinction is where it all needs to start. Until we get this down, nothing else will fall into place. And what this will lead to is a healthy awe of God, a healthy fear of God, where in His presence we see Him for who He is and see ourselves for who we are in light of Him. And we see Him as the great high exalted God. That's why the singing we were doing this morning was so helpful because it was about the greatness of God. I hope you were paying attention to the lyrics. It was about the greatness of God. And when we ponder his greatness, we are put in our proper place before the creator of the universe. It's really what Isaiah goes through in Isaiah 6. If you're familiar with that passage, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the throne. The, 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 his robe filled the temple. He filled it. You know, Princess Diana's robe uh, her, her wedding gown was impressive, right? I remember uh, seeing that, and it was amazing. It's actually in a museum now. You can go see it. But it was nothing compared to this scene, the royalty of God in the temple. Isaiah sees it. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the angels covered their eyes and their feet, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he said, Cool. No, he didn't. He said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He knew he was a sinner in light of the greatness of God, but understanding our sin is not the beginning of humility. Seeing God is. And the fear of the Lord and humility that follows that just follows God like a shadow. So the idea is not to pursue humility it's to pursue a knowledge of God that naturally leads to humility. That's the, the formula I think we see in the Bible. It's Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the Holy One, the one who is high and lifted up and who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and lofty place and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Did you hear that? The high and lofty one doesn't dwell with those who are kind of high and lofty themselves. 
But the high and lofty one draws near to those who humble themselves in his presence and are lowly before him. There it is again, the way up in the Christian economy is down. We get low, so he lifts us up. And the best way to understand God is God in Christ for us on a cross. Of course, you can't find a better passage on humility than Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more important than yourselves. Boy, is that hard to do. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility can't live at the foot of the cross. How could we be proud at the feet of Jesus? How could that be? And this is something we need to get after every day of our lives. When we wake up in the morning, we need to say, Lord, fill me with a sense of who you are so that I will see myself for who I am and I will live a life of humility in submission to you, in a healthy fear of you, in obedience to you and in service to others. Jesus who gave his life for us, washed his disciples' feet as the last grand gesture of what his ministry was all about. And after he lays down his life in this most amazing display of humility, he rises from the dead, conquers sin and death and hell, and you know what he does after he he rises from the dead? He makes his disciples breakfast. You know, there's this scene at the end of the gospel where Jesus is risen from the dead. He conquered. He rules and reigns, and he makes his friends breakfast. He never stops serving us. Do you know what? Even the imagery at at the end of it, when Jesus returns and we're united with him at the wedding banquet, do you know what the image is? If you look at Matthew 22, it's that Jesus... readies himself as a servant and he waits on us he serves us when all is said and done i don't know about you but i hear that and i i think how could that be i want to say no jesus we'll take it from here your service is over don't don't be that way anymore let us serve you forever but we will always need him to be the servant king that's what he is he's the servant king and he always has been and always will be the servant king for us. That's who Jesus is, the one we need him to be, the servant king. And so we think about these things, but it is so hard to understand, isn't it? I'm a theology professor. I teach these things every day. It's what I do. I'm a pastor. I teach these things all the time. But it can be so difficult for me to understand these things, really internalize them, get them into my heart. I remember not long after I started teaching at Biola University, I said, I'm going to get to know all my neighbors, and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I think it's way better to do that soon rather than later with people in your life. I just do. It's kind of weird if you bring it up a year later. Oh, and by the way, the most important thing in my life, a year later? 
And so I did. I started working my way down our street, and I got to know our next-door neighbors, the Revere's, and they're precious people, and I I love them. And I got to know Jess and and his wife, Pudessa, and they have a daughter with disabilities, and we worked with folks with disabilities, and we loved them, and and so we could have a helpful ministry to them. But it wasn't long after we got to know them. I was out running in our neighborhood. I was out for a run, and, and my neighbor Jess drove around the corner, And I waved to him, and he waved to me, and he drove away. And I realized after he drove away that when I saw him coming, I started running faster than I had been running. And then when he was out of sight, I just resumed my previous plodding pace that I had had before. And I thought about that. And I said, what was that all about? Well, you know what it was about. The reason you all laughed is because you know what it's all about. It's about this instinct we have to exalt ourselves before others. Even about something as insignificant as my fitness level that I was trying to demonstrate before my neighbor. Dishonestly. And I thought about that, and I thought, I'm a theology professor. I teach these things that are the antidote to that sort of instinct. Why, when I saw him, was it my overwhelming instinct to pray for him, to wonder how he's doing? We've heard them argue, we live that closely, to pray for their marriage, to pray for their daughter. But no, it's... I thought, wow, I do this for a living. This isn't easy. We need to wake up in the morning and go to war with pride. We can't assume we've got this thing figured out. Until we see Jesus face to face and are conformed to the image of Christ, we will need to go to war with pride every day of our lives. And sometimes I think better than explaining humility, it's seeing it. The the passages Christoph read today for us are so helpful, aren't they? This woman who comes to Jesus with the judgmental eyes of the religious leaders on her and shows him at his feet with her her offering of perfume and her tears, lets her hair down and expresses extravagant gratitude and generosity and worship at the feet of Jesus. That's humility. That's what it looks like. A woman who's a widow in the midst of people giving these loud offerings. You know, the receptacle where you would put your offering was, was made of a, a brass and it would make noise when you dropped lots of coins in and hers didn't make a sound. But Jesus made sure his disciples knew that she was giving everything. We don't know her name. We don't know that woman's name at the feet of Jesus. All we know is she was a sinner woman from the city, probably a prostitute. You may find this strange, but I have a list of people I want to make sure I spend time with in heaven. And I have them listed in the order I want to do that. Now, obviously Jesus is at the top of the list, but I like, will, will there be a waiting list? I'm not sure how it's going to work, but I, I want, obviously I want to spend time with Jesus more than anybody else for, forever. But, but 
I have this list. And you know what's been interesting through the years? As I grow as a Christian, and my Christian values are shaped more and more by the Bible, the people on my list, nobody's been removed from the list, but people have been added to the list that weren't there. And I'm watching different people move up the list. Like this woman whose name we don't even know. Like this widow whose name we don't even know. Like this Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus asking him to heal her son. And he says, you're a Canaanite. I came for the, for the people of Israel. And she says, but can a dog have crumbs off the table? And Jesus marvels at her faith. Do you hear that humility? And he blesses her because of that. I have put on the list and moved up the list the one leper whose name we don't even know, who came back to thank Jesus when the rest didn't. See, it's these examples of people who know how much they've been forgiven, who become the picture of humility for us. See, it's not self-loathing. It's, it's not seeing ourselves as, as unworthy and, and terrible, but it's seeing ourselves in the presence of God. I want to meet the blind beggar who so wanted Jesus to show him mercy, he starts crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the people are saying, shut up. You, you don't have any right to do that. Just quiet down. He's got better things to do than pay attention to you, the most irrelevant person in society over here. But he didn't shut up. He wouldn't shut up. He just kept crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus did. You see, being humble doesn't mean you lack boldness. Being humble doesn't mean you lack confidence. Being humble doesn't mean you don't get up with ambition, sanctified ambition, driven to get to Jesus, whatever that means. And that's what we find over and over again with people who get the gospel. One of the things I would say, the thing I, I value most about my wife, and there are hundreds of things I could list for you, is my wife, Donna, who came to a saving faith in Jesus when she was 19 years old, knows she's been forgiven much. And it shapes her whole life. She can't even talk about it without being moved by it. She knows she's been forgiven much, and that enables her to be the kind of wife and mother and minister that she is. You know, this woman in Luke 7 that we saw, she's contrasted with this Pharisee whose house she is at. Simon, and he's judging this woman in her heart, and Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Dun, dun. He turns to him, and he asks him, who's more grateful? And the answer was, the one who's been forgiven much. And it doesn't mean any of us needs forgiveness any more or less than anyone else before Jesus but it means she understood her need for forgiveness. She was a beautiful mess. And Simon was a really attractive religious leader from a worldly point of view. Appearances can be deceiving. God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. This woman in Luke 7, her love was extravagant and expensive and expressed like David dancing with all his might when the ark was returned to Jerusalem. She know, know, knew she had been forgiven much. Do you know how much you need forgiveness? Do you know how much you have it 
in Christ. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone his own way. None is righteous. No, not one. Do you know how fully you've been forgiven? Do you know how fully you can be righteous in God's sight because of Jesus by faith in him and union with him? Do you know you are adopted by God and can walk in the freedom of humility with nothing left to prove, nothing left to earn, nothing left to demonstrate? If you have nothing to prove before God, how in the world would we ever have anything to prove before a fellow man? We can be free from that kind of constant pressure to prove ourselves that we can all so easily walk in. I want you to know the freedom that comes through knowing God in Christ and the humility that comes with that freedom. This woman loved greatly. And when we are understanding who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. We have a freedom and a boldness and a confidence and an expressiveness in our worship and our generosity seen in the way we love others that is so different than a world that is constantly grabbing and demanding our rights and demanding we're respected and demanding that we're appreciated. No, this kind of humility and freedom leads us to open-handed, extravagant worship and generosity in the way we live because we have nothing left to prove, nothing left to earn. And we follow God in this, reap a cheap in the voyage of the dawn treader as this beautiful scene. We can live lives of, of pragmatic, practical utility. And it's, what's the payoff for this? What's the return on investment for this? Wait, is this going to be worth my time and energy? But there's this freedom when we know who we are in Christ to live out of humble lives and generous lives. Listen to Reap a Cheap in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader when they're sailing off. He says, I hope it will never be told in Narnia that a company of noble and royal persons in the flower of their age turned tail because they were afraid of the dark. They're thinking of turning back when it's dark and they're moving ahead on the ship. And then the captain says, but what manner of use would it be plowing through that blackness? And Reap a Cheap, this little mouse who understands so much wisdom, says, use... Use, Captain? If by use you mean filling our bellies and our purses, I confess it would be of no use at all. But as far as I know, we did not set sail to look for things useful, but to seek honor and adventure. And here it is as great an adventure as ever I heard of. And here, if we turn back, no little impeachment of all our honors. You see, the life of humility is not ultimately a, a getting low, it's a being lifted up. It's a, an, an, an exaltation that God himself brings to us. Jesus gives expensively and extravagantly and expressively. He gave his life so we could live. And Jesus' extravagant generosity leads us to extravagant lives of humility and sacrifice and giving of ourselves for the glory of God and the good of others. The Bible says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you may become rich. Subconscious self-forgetfulness. We adopted our daughter Caroline when she was eight, and she had lived life as a little girl who had been abandoned and gone through a very hard life. And we adopted her and did everything we could to convince her that she was no longer an orphan, but she was in the Tanis family. She was a Tanis forever. 
And she could live in that security. And in some ways, as parents, I think every day of our lives are spent helping our kids to believe that they're no longer our orphans, but they belong. And we told her we were going to church our first Sunday that we had adopted her and brought her home. And we were heading out the door, and she was taking a long time. And my wife and I were sitting in the car, and we finally found out why it was taking her so long. Caroline, this eight-year-old little girl who didn't barely know any English, just spoke Mandarin Chinese, she came out of the house in her arms were laden with as much as she could carry. She had a change of clothes. She had a bunch of her favorite stuffed animals. She had some food. She had some of her favorite books. And she came out carrying everything she possibly could carry out to the car. And she got in the car and we said, Honey, you don't need any of that. We're coming back. And she didn't know English, so she just gave us a look that said, Well, I'm not going to take any chances. And the next week, she came out the same way. And it took us months to finally convince her she didn't need to bring everything she could carry when she left. She didn't have anything to earn or prove or or save for herself. She was able to live in a freedom that comes from knowing that she belongs. See, humility is not just seeing ourselves lowly. It's seeing God as high and lifted up seeing ourselves as desperately needy of him, and then letting him, through Christ by faith, come to us and say, come on, let's go to great places of adventure and confidence and boldness and effectiveness. How many of us walk around every day filled with all the things we think we need to cling to instead of in the freedom of humility, the freedom of knowing God, for us as much as he can be in Christ. Let's pray. Almighty maker of heaven and earth, we come before you so easily distracted, so easily deterred from the things that we've been talking about today, the the basic gospel truth that leads us to worship of you and humility in ourselves and confidence in who we are because of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful family of yours that worships you and serves you in this church. And I pray that you would do a powerful work here. Lord, thank you for the amazing signs of grace in your work among the people. Thank you for Christoph and and Claire and their beautiful hearts for you and for these people. I pray that Um, the ministry here would thrive and this would truly be a light in this city, in this country, and in the world. Lord, I pray for uh, a growing awe of you and humility in themselves and an effectiveness and boldness and joy and fruitfulness that flows from that. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.